The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callaghan Innovation, New Zealand's innovation agency. Here's your host, Simon Pound. Let's say you destroy your knee and need a knee replacement, or your hip needs to be changed out. These are quite common surgeries, but they also quite commonly need to be revised or redone because every person's exact joint shape and way of using it is unique to each body. A lot of whether it all works, first time, comes down to whether the replacement part chosen is appropriate. But how can you know before you open someone up? Well, now a super clever local company, Formus Labs, is commercialising research using AI and computer modelling and helping surgeons design bespoke surgery plans for patients with their cloud-based software. They take CT scan data to build a computer model to help select the right implant and right approach. It's revolutionary tech. It takes the guesswork out about size, shape, stresses and orientation and it's picking up a global market. The company stemmed in large part from the research of Dr Chu Zhang, who is the CEO and joins me now to talk the journey, the concept and what's next. Tenakwe, thank you for being here. Oh, it's great to be here, Simon. Hey, so first up, um, how did you get interested in the space of computer modelling and CT scan data and the, the inner workings of joints and the like? Yeah, uh, it's been an interesting journey here. Uh, I think I always was very interested in um, well, computers uh, and also um, computer imaging and, and data, I suppose, in general. So when I was in my undergrad in my last year uh, working on my fourth-year engineering pro- project, um, I was actually looking at the shapes of people's bodies. The institute has just purchased uh, full-body 3D scanners, and I was going to collect uh, 3D scans of, of people's bodies and then look at how that shape varies across the population. Um, what happened was that scanner uh, was stolen slash lost, and instead of applying the math and the modeling to um, 3D bodies, we decided to apply it to uh, CT scans uh, of people's hips and femurs. And so that's when I got into um, working with the CT scans and working with um, the medical imaging. And uh, so building on that, we developed technology that could automatically process these images and then uh, generate 3D models of the bone. And we had about 300 of these CT scans which allowed us to look at the shapes of people's bones across the whole population and look at how does that shape vary between young and old, um, 
uh, different body shapes, how does that, how does that um, correlate to their bone shape? And then with that knowledge, to then bootstrap the next level automation to then, um, okay, now if we have someone's new CT scan, can we predict their bone shape? And then once we predicted that bone shape, what can we do with that? And then building on that, that's how we got into orthopedics. And so, well, what we can do with these bone models is to apply it to help people um, figure out the best implant. Uh, for their hip or their knee. So, yeah, it, yeah. it's sort of been a step-by-step process, but I guess I can, I've been quite fortunate that I have been able to build upon my research and, you know, build it into actual product. Yeah, wow, and that research has taken you around the world to some of the great kind of institutions uh, in, in medical uh, research, hey? Yeah, yeah, so, again, uh, really fortunate um, to have uh, you know my PhD supervisors who have these international collaborations and and through these networks through the conferences and so on to you know be able to spend some time at Imperial at Stanford working with some you know really amazing people and seeing how they do uh, biomechanics modeling and uh, where they see that technology going and so yeah just been able to absorb all that from these various labs and sort of apply that uh, to to what Formus is doing now. Yeah. And so tell me about like the problem that exists before Formus came along. Like mm. what are doctors doing if they aren't using a service like yours? All credit to the orthopedic surgeons that the hip replacement has been one of the most successful surgeries of the last 40 years and it's um, you know it's made a huge amount of difference to people's lives. Um, but of course being from 40 years ago, there wasn't all this technology and imaging uh, available. And so what has developed is a, um, a way of doing things which is very much dependent on a, each individual surgeon's training, their preference, and what uh, implants they've been trained to use. And each surgeon will apply their set of intuition, experience, and skills to every patient that they see. Um, so... But but then with the technology that or the technology and data we have our, at our disposal these days, we can make a much more objective measure of what would be the best for each patient. So we sort of want to go from a, a almost sort of one size or one approach fits all kind of methodology to a very patient specific, patient matched uh, process of of planning surgery and then also executing the surgery. So, you know, the, the other sort of uh, issue that we're trying to solve right now is um, doing that preoperative planning because a lot of uh, a lot of surgeries there is the amount of sort of preoperative planning is can be as simple as looking at an X-ray before you go in. And so, uh, you know, if you if you're lucky enough to be um, going under knife by a highly experienced surgeon who does hundreds of hips a year, um, he or she will probably you know have be able to figure out what to use on the operating table quite well. Um, but not every surgeon has that level of expertise, and so. Um, when they go in, perhaps they may take a bit longer to figure out the right implant. And of course, when you're lying on the table under anesthesia, um, you know, the quicker you're out of there, the better, I suppose. So, so hopefully, with our technology, they, every surgeon can plan like the best surgeons, and they can have a clear idea of what they're going into. And once they get in there, they get it done, um, and 
and the patients back on their feet as soon as they can. And it means the patients have spent less time in surgery, they spend less time in recovery, and the surgeons and the health system can get through more cases. So, yeah. With the implants at the moment, are they kind of, you know, like three sizes or something? Or, you, you know, are there is, is there a small variety that you choose from? And then, I mean, joints are such extraordinarily complex and great interrelated systems and in that how you walk, what muscle mass you have around it, um, your your weight, your height, uh, your bones. There's so many um, elements that come into the actual shape. It's not as simple, is it, as like a ball in a in a socket. Yeah, no, no, completely right. Um, I mean, the, the hip, one reason why it's been so successful is because it's as close to a ball and socket joint as you get in the body. Um, and most other joints aren't so simple. Um, and But when you look at the implants, it is very much a sort of a T-shirt size uh, kind of arrangement. You have sizes, you know, 5 to 20. Uh, for some implants, some implants have much have a much smaller range. And those sizes and shapes have, uh, they've been, I suppose, developed with feedback from surgeons. So there's definitely clinical uh, insight that's gone into the design of the implants. Um, but I, I think what they lack is the feedback from how do patients function with each patient's different, as you said, muscle mass, uh, muscle strength, shape of their bones, which create different uh, moment arms within the joint. Um, the, the, the sort of the sizes 10 to 20 kind of approach doesn't quite uh, account for that. And so you, you either have implants that uh, have maybe too few sizes to capture everyone, or you have implant systems that have you know, hundreds of potential combinations between the different sizes and shapes, and then you can't really expect any particular person to know what the optimal combination of those are for any particular patient. So where our software comes in is if there are hundreds of possible combinations that we can very quickly simulate across the whole set of implants and say for this patient you should use uh, size uh, 10 of implant A, size 12 of implant B, fit it with a size shape C of implant D, and that's the optimal combination. Yeah, and there's some quite remarkable numbers of implants. Well, I mean, I mean the, the, the top line is that it's normally very successful and does very well, but there's quite a surprisingly large number that have to be revised, hey? Yeah, yeah uh, I'm absolutely right. So... Um, New Zealand uh, has this great thing called the New Zealand Joint Registry, which means we track in New Zealand every joint replacement that happens, uh, what implant is used, how, uh, if it was a revision, um, how long this implant lasted before it had to be revised. So we have very good statistics on the lifetimes and revision rates of hip replacements, knee replacements. So, for example, in the hip, about 1 in 11, 1 in 10 hip surgeries in New Zealand are a uh, revision surgery. So this is where the old, the existing implant has loosened or worn out or there's been an infection and you have to go in and take it out and put in a new one. Um, the rates, I, I think for hip, they're probably one of the best rates. If you look at other joints like knees and shoulders, the revision rates are, are, are higher. So... And there's a variety of reasons why they do need uh, revision, and infection is certainly one. Um, but in many cases, um, yeah, it, it is a more of a mechanical issue of uh, loosening or wearing out. And, and that's when it gets bad enough that it has to be 
uh, taken out. Uh, but I think in a lot of cases, the patient may just be not as satisfied as they could be with their implants. So they can perhaps now stand up and walk around, but they may still not be able to do uh, a deep squat. Or if they're sitting down, they've got to be careful not to lean forward too far in case they dislocate their artificial hip again. And so these are the these are the sort of the, the functional aspects that we're considering in terms of optimizing the implants for a particular patient. So it's not good enough that they can just stand up and shuffle around. We want people to be able to regain their uh, daily activities and a quality of life so that they can um, get their freedom back and you know, maybe even get back to you know, more active activities, playing sports and so on. And, and part of what you, I mean, the, the big part of what you, solve for is that planning and selection of the right off-the-shelf uh, technology. But are you also able to kind of, with that data, with, with that modelling that you do from the, the, the CT scan um, uh, base material, are you able to kind of like... 3D print the perfect shape for the, <laughs> the difficult cases. Yeah, abso- absolutely. Um, so uh, one of the projects we're doing with uh, Dr. Paul Monk at Auckland Hospital is a 3D printed um, little tool for doing a particular type of uh, knee surgery. So it's called a high tibial osteotomy, which uh, basically involves cutting a wedge in your shin and reorienting your knee so that you take the load off uh, the painful side of your knee if you have a painful side of the knee. And it's, it's used to um, a, a procedure to potentially delay a full-blown knee replacement. And so in these surgeries, um, the key part that we're optimizing for is uh, the angle uh, of this wedge. So how many degrees do we want to actually correct and realign the, the knee? And so with our modeling um, and, and imaging that, that we do, we can simulate and, and calculate uh, what's the optimal uh, rebalancing in the knee in terms of the load. Uh, and then to, to rebalance that load, what should the shape of that wedge be? And then we can design that wedge. And then that indeed does get 3D printed. And then when Paul does the surgery, he puts the wedge in. It's an exact the knee uh, gets realigned to exact the right angle he wants, and then he bolts it in, and um, and then away we go. So that that's that's one example where instead of uh, calculating the optimal set of off-the-shelf implants, we can do something that's completely custom for each individual patient. Kia ora, I'm Sophie. And I'm Simon. And I'm Alice, and together we host the spin-off's food podcast, Dietary Requirements. Join us each month as we explore a vast culinary landscape from the gourmet Ooh la la. to your more hearty tucker. Kiwi onion dip, anyone? Everything's on the table in Dietary Requirements. Subscribe wherever you listen to all your other favourite podcasts. I wonder if it's surprising or not surprising that, that so much of it at the moment is off the shelf and um, I guess... You, know, you don't want to think that when you're getting operated on, there's an element of we'll open it up and see what what'll fit and hope it'll be right. But I, I, I guess that, that without that kind of uh, detailed um, data, it would be very hard to <laughs> very hard to know. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I guess you have to give it up to the human body for being so adaptable and, and that you can just bung something in and, I don't know, 80%, 90% of the time you're okay with it. But we want to do better than that and and patients want to do better than that and surgeons know they, 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 they should do better than that. So, um, 
Yeah, so so collecting that the data, so the data that we're working with is, of course, imaging data from CT um, and other modalities like MRI and X-ray. That allows us to get uh, really accurate 3D models of a patient's bone, um, not just outside of the bone, but the insides of the bone because that's where the implant has to plug into, um, but then also um, the positions of their muscle insertions where tendons insert into the bone, um, we also use data about um, the patient's own kind of how they stand. Uh, so this is sort of more functional data. So yes, we can get the 3D models of their bones, but actually when they're going about their daily lives, what's the orientation in which they actually stand? So um, that sort of functional data both before the surgery and we like to use data uh, from the patients after their surgery to see how their function has improved to feed that back into our algorithms um, so that we can, the, the, the ultimate goal is if a patient comes in, we can predict what the optimal outcome function should be and then uh, predict the types of implants we should use to help them achieve that optimal uh, recovery for that particular patient. Of course, not every patient can get back to Olympic athlete levels of function. So what is the realistic expectation for each patient? And then how do we get there for each patient? And so that yeah, involves fusing data from before the surgery, from the imaging, from after the surgery, and it's a continuous sort of learning process. Yeah, t tell me about that continuous learning process, because I guess it must be so cool to go from, uh, you know, really um, pure research where you were uh, on the journey of the PhD and, and solving what, you know, must have been, um, you know, even to take... Uh, you know, two-dimensional data, um, <laughs> like 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 CT scans, and turn it into a model, a working model, um, has has a benefit. But then to be able to have such strong application for it and keep building on that, um, yeah, t talk me through th through that kind of journey. Yeah. Um, so when I was doing my sort of PhD and even undergrad. Um, I was doing what I guess people used to call or still call machine learning on the data that we have. And so other people may just call it statistics. It's <laughs> what a lot of people call AI these days have as much more humble beginnings. Um, but that was basically looking at uh, what, is the, what is the variation of data that we have and how can we, if we can capture that variation, how can we do predictions with it? And that applies... Um, as much to um, you know, predicting the stock market next week uh, as it is to predicting what is this object in an image. And so we're using those sort of basic machine learning algorithms and we're applying it um, across that sort of whole process. So it began with looking at the shapes of the bones and predicting the shapes of the bones, then to looking at images and, and, what's, and doing what's called image segmentation, which is... Um, here you have a CT scan, which pixels in here is bone, which pixels is muscle, um, doing that kind of labeling and then extracting the 3D model of the bone. Um, and then once you have that 3D model of the bone, uh, using more machine learning to then give meaning to that geometry. So if the, this bone is shaped like this, what are the actual sort of meaningful anatomical regions, anatomical points on that bone for each individual? Um, <clears throat> and then... And then building on top of that then is um, models that look at 
uh, the how that bone interacts with another bone, and also how implants would fit into that bone. Um, so that's sort of all on the, uh, I, I suppose, the, the, the pure research simulation side. But now that we have um, surgeons using our software to do their planning, that opens up a whole new set of data, which is how does the user, how does the surgeon um, do their planning? What does the surgeon select uh, to, for that particular patient? Because we can suggest an optimal set, but of course our users like to come in and um, review it and maybe make some changes to that plan. So, so does a certain type of surgeon always like to make some sort of additional changes? Are there groups of surgeons that plan their surgeries in a similar way? Um, and then if there are these different ways that they plan the surgeries, what is the outcome like? How is that different between the different groups? Um, so there's layers and layers of uh, machine learning or AI, if you want to call it, um, built into our built into our platform, built into our software that gives us insight uh, all the way from you know the individual pixels and image to looking at how groups of uh, patients or groups of surgeons um, uh, behave through this whole orthopedic process. What are the reactions from the surgeons who you are giving this tool? It must be so cool for them to kind of go from flat image to uh, the system, the interrelated nature of the bones, to be able to, you know, actually kind of visualise these items uh, in space without having to chuck on scrubs and get out the, 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 the skill saw. Surgeons in general love, um, you know, shiny 3D models and toys. So, you know, the first thing they see when they log in is this fully 3D um, hip or, or, you know, joint. And uh, there's definitely that, that wow factor, the fact they can spin it around. They can uh, look, at every, look at this bone from every single angle. Um, because when they do the actual surgery, um, even for hip surgery, what they get access to is, is uh, maybe a little sort of circle about five centimeters in diameter. They don't get to actually see a lot of the, the, the joint, but using the software, they can see the full 3D bone. Um, and then they can also look at, okay, if I put in this implant, this is how that bone, that joint is gonna articulate. This is how much range of motion it's gonna have. Um, and of course, allows them to go through the whole catalog and you know select every single implant and see how that changes the patient's anatomy. And that's something that I guess there hasn't uh, they didn't have a tool to do that to, to do that before. So uh, the surgeons are, are, are very uh, excited to have a tool like this, and they see the potential in it of not just being able to do this planning on the CT today, but also yeah, give them insight into. Um, the patient's sort of journey uh, and also um, their own, um, I guess, their own sort of practice and, and, and being able to collect data on how they do cases and how those cases turn out down the line and being able to both help the software and themselves learn from that data. So, yeah, they, I, I have to say they're, they're pretty excited about it. Yeah, oh, it must be, especially if you've got things like, even if it's one ten. Hip, hip replacements that might need revision. You don't want to be putting someone who's likely to skew older under two <laughs> two anaesthetics in a short time and big recoveries if you can help it. It must be must be such a and in, in your journey as well. Like when did you realise that this was going to be the best application? And what were the process? Uh, what what were the processes or the steps for you to go from uh, finishing the PhD to then setting up the company and becoming CEO and and building it out? Yeah. So. 
when I got to the end of my PhD, uh, I guess with uh, most PhD students, there's sort of a decision to make about, okay, do I continue on with academia and uh, do another couple of postdocs, write some papers, um, or do I, I don't know, get a real job? Um, I, I was in this fortunate position where um, one of my co-founders, uh, Professor Tor Bazir, had just come back from running uh, a human performance lab at Stanford. So he had just come back to Auckland and um, he had won a grant to commercialize or prototype uh, some of the modeling technology we have at the Auckland Bioengineering Institute where I was doing my PhD. So um, I saw that as an opportunity to do, maybe pick a third option, which is to build on the PhD uh, and build it into a potential product uh, and aim towards orthopedics. And so um, that's the decision I, I made, that I, I want to um, carry on working with what I'm doing and, and get it closer to the clinic. Uh, sort of. So with the guidance from Tor, um, we uh, looked around in orthopedics to see what problems can we solve with um, the technology we have. So what we had at that time was basically a toolbox of different computational methods. We have some stuff that can do imaging-related stuff, some stuff that can do uh, biomechanics kind of stuff. Um, and we were looking for a problem where we can string together a, a, a set of these tools to, to make a real difference. And so, uh, so on that postdoc, we, we developed the prototype of, uh, of the software. And then we went out to the market and we went out to the surgeons and say, hey, we've got this cool platform. It can do these things. Um, how can we help you solve your problems? And so that's where the more commercial stuff, I suppose, started. Um, and that involved learning a whole new set of skills. Um, and um, But, you know, I guess we were fairly well received and that people out there, both commercially and clinically, saw great potential uh, in, in the platform, the prototype we had built. And we were able to now turn it into an actual product and get it out into the market for uh, real surgeons, real patients. Yeah, cool. And how's it, how's it going now? <laughs> uh, it's going pretty good. So um, we got a lot of support from New Zealand investors about um, 18 months ago where we did our seed round. Um, and on the back of that, we were able to grow the team. We're up to 10 people now. Um, and our, our software is in uh, clinical evaluation in Australia and New Zealand, um, and we are close to going live, um, well, uh, live officially, I suppose, um, uh, yeah, in, in Australia and New Zealand. And um, we are you know, looking to other markets as well, doing the groundwork uh, around sort of the regulatory side of things and also the commercialized commercial side of things to uh, make sure we have, we spot the opportunities in um, uh, other international markets where we can apply our software. So it's really exciting. Um, the team is growing. Um, I think it's it's been a lot of hard work over the last uh sort of 24 months really for, for a lot of the team. Um, but uh, we're really enthusiastic knowing that the, the, the finish line, at least for this first version, is really close. And, you know, we're, there are just um, 
things that we're adding to the, the, the product roadmap uh, all the time based on us talking to surgeons, talking to other orthopedics companies. And so there's a, there's a lot of stuff uh, <laughs> in my mind that we want to want to execute. And so, um, yeah, just, just really excited about what we can do in the next sort of 18 months. Yeah, wow. And, and what's the opportunity out there? Like, are there... Other, I mean, there's a lot of people that can be helped with this kind of uh, approach. Are there other companies trying it overseas, or are you kind of got the head, head start on the go? <laughs> yeah, no, there, there are definitely others doing, I guess, what's called preoperative planning um, outfits, big and small. Um, our what we when we looked at what's out there, um, the thing that struck us is they're most, mostly still based on you know, 2D x-rays and 2D x-rays have been used for the last 40 years and really what we know from our computational modeling of joint function is you need that 3D information. And so one of our points of difference is we were 3D from day one. You know, we, we, we realized the importance of that 3D data and we built that into our uh, system from the ground up. The other thing is we, we sort of have this on-tap access to just great talent from the um, Auckland Bioengineering Institute. That these are the sort of the, the bleeding edge in biomechanics research um, who are just sort of downstairs from our office. And we still work really closely with uh, Professor Torbazier and um, other researchers at the ABI. And so we, we have access to really bring into the software um, as I said, you know, some bleeding edge uh, biomechanical modeling that uh, sets us different from uh, sets, sets us apart from everyone else. And what's the what's it like stepping? You know, what what are the kind of uh, the the framework and the processes around you to help that stepping from the world of academia through through to commercializing the product and keeping that relationship with those centers of learning and with the University of Auckland like that? Like, is it is it kind of like a path that you follow that's already set or is it, um, yeah, something that you're kind of putting the tracks down in front of you? Yeah, it's um, the ABI has been, I guess, really, um, well, uh, the ABI has been a great mentor to not only us but other companies that have spun out uh, of, of the institute. And so I really have to thank... Uh, Professor Peter Hunter, who's the director of the Institute, um, and everyone else there for creating this environment where researchers feel able and empowered to take their research out into the commercial world. Um, so the ABI, uh, I think, um, maybe 12 months ago, set up a floor solely devoted to spin-out companies because we've just had uh, so many of them steadily over the last several years that... Um, I guess we started getting in the way of the <laughs> regular researchers, <laughs> so they kicked us out uh, up to up to um, level nine, which is now called Cloud Nine. Um, so on Cloud Nine, there are there is us, and then there is about a, half a dozen other companies that have grown out of the ABI, doing all sorts of stuff. Um, you know, uh, making devices, um, looking at whole completely different organ systems, um, and and the ABI has been really helpful in. Um, allowing the companies uh, to still access the world-class research at the university, at, at the institute, and for researchers to also participate in the commercial and the mm -hmm. academic field. Um, and that's not something that is done in every other university as well. Some universities draw a very clear line between research and, and um, commercial interests. Um, but I think there, there's a huge 
opportunity if if that um, if that connection is there and and um, you know for example our commercial partners see as, as a great asset that we have and based in the ABI and having access to this sort of world class. Um, Research. I mean, the the orthopedics is a field where you have to front up with the data to convince the surgeons, and so uh, research, academic research, is a sort of integral part of the product development. And so, um, you know, yeah, uh, being able to work with the researchers at ABI um, has been uh, a really crucial part of our success. I'd say. Yeah, and what advice would you? have for someone who maybe is looking to uh, take some of their research that has such a potential for great application to help people? Uh, you know, what, what kind of skills or things do they need to know to, to be able to take it through a great successful funding round and growing a team and building out markets and, uh, yeah, yeah, commercialising all of those concepts? Yeah, um, yeah that's a great question. Um, I think probably every entrepreneur you talk to has a different um, take on that. For me, I suppose it's it's probably just willingness to listen and learn um, because one person can't do everything. You're not going to be at the best at everything, and so at least <laughs> not when you start. Um, so you have to be able to learn, uh, and and you know you have to listen to the people to who um, maybe your users or your or your customers to listen to understand what what it is they need to figure out. Well, I guess what you call your product market fit. I mean, for one thing. And then, um, you know, New Zealand, in the New Zealand ecosystem, there are some great mentors to help um, startups or, or people wanting to take their research into a, <clears throat> into a startup space. And so being receptive to the advice from these people uh, is, is really important because there are certainly pitfalls and um, uh, right and wrong ways of doing things. And... Um, you know, some people say you, you have to just learn by doing, and that's certainly true. But there are people out there who can help you, um, you know, make the road a little less bumpy. Yeah, awesome. And what will what will success be for you with Formus Labs? Yeah, um, I, I think helping helping patients and and improving outcomes uh, for for the patients. That that's the I guess that's for for any sort of medical device company. Uh, that's in it for the right reasons. That is the outcome: is to is improve patient outcome. Um, it's going to take a few years to collect all the data to prove that out. But in that meantime, um, you know, making surgeons' uh, jobs easier um, uh, that's that's also a core core part of our success. And I, I think also it's it's about um, sort of bring together the talent that we have in New Zealand um, and and using that to deliver something that's that's really meaningful um, to 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 people's lives and people's quality of life as well that's so cool hey, well thank you so much for sharing the story of uh, of former slabs and where you're taking it thanks for joining us today that's uh, Dr. Zhu Zhang, the CEO of Former Slabs. Uh, thank you very much to Jane Yi for producing, and thank you very much for having us along in your ears. Cheers. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound, and brought to you by the spin off and Callahan Innovation.
from the Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.